following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. We welcome you this evening to our services. All right, turn your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Proverbs, please. I'd like to read there. We uh, went through our recordings and found that we somehow did not have chapter 18 so uh, we have 17 and 19 uh, in, in uh, quote, captivity, but uh, 18 has somehow escaped. And I wanted to have that uh, because there are a number of good verses in there. So I'm going to read that for us, and that way we'll get that one into the uh, record as well. All right, Proverbs 18 says this, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. A fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. When the wicked comes, contempt comes also, and with honor comes reproach. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The wellspring of wisdom is a flowing brook. It is not good to show partiality to the wicked or to overthrow the righteous in judgment. A fool's lips enter into contention, and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles. They go down into the inmost body. He who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his own esteem. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, and before honor is humility. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. The spirit of man will sustain him in sickness, but who can bear a broken spirit? The heart of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Casting lots causes contentions to cease and keeps the mighty apart. A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city, and contentions are like the bars of a castle. A man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. From the produce of his lips he shall be filled. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The poor man uses entreaties, but the rich answers roughly. A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 18. I have several questions that have come to my desk uh, in the last days that I want to go over with you tonight and just take the opportunity to address them. Maybe the folks that ask the questions are listening online, um, and then we can get into our study in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, the first of those questions has to do with uh, my message this morning uh, about Paul and his uh, linguistic abilities. Let me try to uh, pose the question and then answer it in an organized fashion. The, the, the question, what's that? Yes, a genius. The Apostle Paul, I said this morning, had facility probably in at least three languages naturally 
And then I listed a number of areas to which he traveled, and one uh, person listening asked the question, were you saying that the natural abilities he had in languages were the result of the gift of tongues? And the answer, short answer to that question is very short, it's two letters, no. Uh, very clearly the case. Um, when I'm giving, giving a catalog of his linguistic ability, uh, yes, perhaps it was unclear, which I don't like, but I'm trying to clarify it now. Uh, he had facility in Greek, certainly, Hebrew, certainly, uh, perhaps Aramaic, which I didn't mention this morning, and perhaps uh, Latin. I don't know exactly what that language looked like back then. I'm not as familiar with that historically. Uh, and so trilingual, quadrilingual, I was, uh, I was reflecting on people who are, uh, in, in effect, polyglots, you know, that know so many languages. And uh, am I correct that our former first lady was quite a, uh, a linguist? Uh, she knew several languages, knows, not knew, knows several languages. And I remember in particular a couple of times people mocking her because of her accent in English. And I just had to, you know, it was one of those, you know, palm to the forehead kind of moments, like how could somebody be so, A, discriminatory, and B, um, mean and see uninformed. I'm talking about Mrs. Trump, who had ability in, in several languages. And uh, English was not by far her first language. It maybe was uh, third or fourth on the list or something. But to mock somebody for pronunciation, that's childish. And it's very ignorant, um, very disappointing. But I just wondered if the people doing that ever had attempted to learn another language or had a facility in, in any other language. Um, maybe they did, but uh, it just seemed to me out of place to, to be mean like that. Um, but Paul certainly had some of those abilities, and I, I lament the fact that in our nation we are very provincial and learn basically one language. We really should learn two or three languages um, from from youth and school, and it's just not emphasized, and it's a pity that it, that it is, because you learn so much about language and culture uh, when you learn another language, and people, and thinking, because you use language to think, and so you can really broaden your mind by learning other languages, but we just don't do that. In fact, that is a, a reason why Americans are some looked down upon in the world, because we don't care to learn other languages. We, we haughtily think that English is all that's necessary. Uh, some of us do. Uh, not all of us, of course. But anyway, back to the point of my answer to the question. Paul's uh, linguistic abilities were not this, the gift of tongues. That's not what it was. So Paul had pre-existing uh, abilities in language, whether it was just normal ability uh, or extraordinary ability, uh, as some today have. Uh, he would even say of himself, you might recall that uh, he thought of himself as not being very apt in terms of speech. He was not an orator. He was not a tra trained in rhetoric like some were. And all the, all the better because it made the message of the gospel the key element of his presentation. It wasn't his great oratory. It wasn't his rhetoric, you know, his delivery method or style. It was the message of the gospel of Christ. So he had naturally several languages uh, he may have had extra linguistic ability that, that some of us seem to lack. You know, we, we know I'm not musical. I don't have that, quote, language. Uh, 
you know, very well. And but he had he probably had some of that ability naturally. But then, think of the assignment he's given. Paul, you're the apostle to the Gentiles. You're going to go from Jerusalem around about to Illyricum. You're going to go through all these different regions. Uh, and certainly, you know, Greek was a lingua franca of the time, but there were other regional languages that he probably was helped to have some abilities in. And so I believe that the gift of tongues to Paul was to give him abilities in those other foreign languages that he didn't know so that he could quickly get the people up to speed on the message of the gospel. Make sense? So regular ability in language, perhaps extra linguistic uh, giftedness just in an intellectual way, but then also the gift of tongues by the Spirit in those other languages. So I don't think that he learned Greek by the Spirit's gift of tongues. He just learned that from being a baby and growing up in that language just like everybody else does. So that's, uh, that's the answer to that question on Paul's uh, language abilities. Second question I received from someone I have never met on the website, but uh, they were following along with our message. And remember, uh, the last time that we had the Lord's table, I spoke on the uh, idea of God's forgiveness. And uh, the title was God Forgives Sinners. And we really looked at Micah. Remember that passage in Micah? Maybe I should turn there and just remind us of it because it's such a wonderful passage. The end of Micah, uh, I'll get there in just a moment here. In Micah chapter 7, it says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, remember that, and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God does indeed forgive sinners, and we are thankful for that. So let me, me, based on that, then give you the question that I received. Uh, The question says, I received this through the church website. Um, It says, at the end, before communion, you mentioned that people should not take communion unless they were baptized or intended to be baptized. I've often said that, haven't I? Uh, I was not at the service and only listening to audio, so it's hard to know how the church functions by one audio message and in a smiley face. This person is asking, I think, an honest, good question, not you know trying to do a gotcha. But it kind of came off as baptism was a work. Is that what you meant, or was that said for possible visitors so they don't take the communion lightly? And the question goes on, but I won't go on because it reveals some more personal information. Um, So I wrote to this uh, inquirer and said, thanks for your inquiry. Your impression that we believe baptism to be a work is not right if by work you mean a deed necessary to acquire salvation. Are you with me? Okay. No works are required or even able to save anyone's soul except for the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. On the other hand, baptism is a, quote, work in that it is something Jesus tells us to do, and it's a good work, and it should be done by all true believers. But let me be clear, baptism saves no one. Okay, So you see, when somebody said, is, is it a work? Well, 
It's not a work to obtain salvation, but it is a work. I mean, it's a thing we do out of obedience to God. And so hopefully that distinction is clear. I, I don't really want to say, no, it's not a work at all, because then what is it? It's, I mean, it's something. It's an act. You can call it an act if you want, uh, a religious ritual if you want, but that somebody could call a work. So anyway, certainly not a work in the sense of obtaining salvation. And then I add, what I was illustrating with my statement about baptism is this point. If you are refusing to be baptized, one of the commands of Christ, then you are living in sin and need to deal with that sin before taking communion. What pastor is going to tell his people in his church, hey, you know, if you're living in sin, eh, don't worry about it. Just take the elements. You know, no worries. No, we can't go there. We cannot go there. Yes, the table is for sinners. It's for self-examining sinners. It's for sinners who are repenting sinners. But it's not for sinners who are sinning with a high hand in the face of God. Uh, I add then the exception case if, you know, about being intending to be baptized because we don't have a baptism service every month. So maybe somebody has newly realized they need to be baptized or maybe they've just gotten saved fully intend to be baptized, but have not yet had the opportunity to do so, not their fault, I'll say my fault. We're not having a baptism every week that uh, maybe somebody needs it. No problem with taking the communion in that case, personally. Other churches may believe differently on that, but that's where I'm at on that issue. Uh, A question also indicated that um, there's some concern about other churches moving in the direction of social justice, and that's why there's an inquiry about our church and what we believe. I uh, say to the uh, inquirer here, we are keenly interested in divine justice, not social justice, okay? Divine justice. Any, it's a tough, uh, it's a, it's a, you, you start to uh, get into untenable territory whenever you put some word in front of justice other than like divine justice or biblical justice, you know? Uh, social justice, what does that mean? Well, we know, if you study it, you know what it means. It doesn't mean biblical justice. It's this whole, you know, kind of idea of, we went over it a little bit ago, a few weeks ago, with that list of, uh, the glossary of terms that I went over, um, having to do with classifications of humanity into groups, oppressed groups and oppressor groups, and then overthrowing the oppressor groups so that the oppressed groups can have their their day in the sun, so to speak. And so uh, we are not moving in that direction of leftist ideas of social justice at all. Uh, We're still here, right, standing on the Bible where we've always been, regardless of the winds of social change that are coming and going as they tend to do. So we emphasize Jesus is preeminent and the Bible is God's truth. So, That's the second of the questions that I received. And then the third, the third issue that came up. And by the way, if you have a question you're formulating, uh, you can let us know that. And uh, if you're remote, you might send uh, send Jansen the message, okay? Let me give it to to him, although I do have my phone today. Uh, Oh, yeah, here's one. Look at that. Dangerous to look at my phone. All right, I'll have to set that one aside just for a moment and uh, come back to that. Okay, so <clears throat> the third issue that I had on my desk this, from this week was 
the uh, Hebrew Roots Movement revisited. Uh, when we posted those videos on YouTube, uh, we had a couple of comments. One was a, a nice short comment about how that person was thankful that we were dealing with this issue. And the other one was a criticism. And the criticism I will uh, give to you here, and then my reply, and then two kind of a back and forth. I just want to share that with you tonight. And hopefully this gets into uh, the record as well by recording and video, not only writing, as I've already written on this. I put this on, my, on the church blog, uh, on my blog page, so that that's there as well. Um, so we delivered the messages on the Hebrew Roots Movement in December, December 2nd, 6th, and 13th. So can you believe that already? That's two months ago. It doesn't seem possible, but... Um, So one comment was this, Moses didn't ever make up his own law. Whose finger do you think wrote the Ten Commandments? That's the the question. And I'm, maybe my tone of voice gave away how I'm understanding the tone of the questioner. It's a bit adversarial, isn't it? Moses didn't ever make up his own law. Whose finger do you think wrote the Ten Commandments? I'm just reading the quote. That's it. So I replied, and the fellow's uh, name was Mike, so I have no idea who Mike is, but we'll just call him by his, his name, his handle there on YouTube. I wrote this. The statement and question you write in your comment are not a point of difference between us. That is, we never said or even implied that Moses made up his own law. That's clear, right? We've never said that before, never thought that. That's never been a teaching that anybody has ever uh, held. It was obviously the law of God. It is called the Mosaic Law for short because God gave it through Moses. That's all. It's not, it's not the law of Moses because Moses made it up in his head or sucked it out of his thumb, as some pejoratively say. He got it from God. He got it from Mount Sinai. In fact, I was just reading with our son Daniel a couple mornings ago, Exodus 19 and 20. And God appears on Mount Sinai there, and the people are told to stay back, and he starts giving the law to Moses and says, this is what you're supposed to tell those people. And then I say this, and of course, God wrote the tablets. Remember the tablets of the Ten Commandments? He wrote them. In fact, he wrote them twice. Why twice? Because the first time Moses took them down the mountain and found the people had had uh, you know, fallen into idolatry, so he smashed them, symbolically showing that the law was already broken before it was really even given to them. And so God rewrote them. Uh, that's recorded in Deuteronomy 9 and 10 and also Exodus 31 and 34. But we have to admit, Moses did write the law that God gave in the, what do you want to call them, parchments or whatever. I mean, you know, we, you don't have a page of stone in the original manuscripts uh, from God. Those were set, laid up elsewhere. So they recorded those uh, in paper form, if you will, and passed them down to us through preservation and translation. My response continues. I say, now perhaps your question is meant to suggest that God wrote the law, not Moses, and therefore the law is eternally binding. Now, this is where we're getting at the nub of what Hebrew Roots Movement says. The movement is saying that the law of God is eternally binding, and I think this fellow may have been taught or maybe 
teaching, trying to say that it was God who gave the law, don't you know? And since it was God, it can never be changed. It's always for all people at all times. Uh, even the stranger must obey the law. And I quoted that verse. I don't have it in, it's in numbers somewhere. I don't have it in my head right now uh, where the law applies to the stranger as well. So uh, that is to say, maybe the suggestion is it's not man's law, but God's law, and therefore must be followed by all men of all, eth- of all ethnicities of all times. But I respond to that. We differ with you very firmly if that is your point. Let me give some illustrations. Have you had a son and had him circumcised? Did you do it on the eighth day? If not, you broke the law of God. Leviticus 12.3 specifically says the eighth day. If you believe God has made it still binding even upon Gentiles, and if you break the law in one point, what? You've broken all of it. That's James's point very clearly. The Apostle Paul commanded the Gentiles in Colossae that they were not to accept the man's judgment against them if they did not observe days such as the Sabbath or months or other religious rituals, other ex- uh, sorts of external re- religious rites. Those rites do nothing to restrain the appetites of the flesh. Interesting, I had uh, written this in men at men's prayer yesterday. Remember, we touched on that very verse, didn't we, in Colossians? where the, the, uh, the external things are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh, you can't go to a monastery and escape your sin. You take it right in the doors of the monastery with you, right? So the book of Galatians, in addition, is clear, as is Acts 15, that circumcision is not necessary for Gentiles to practice. Only if you were to believe that the, the law of God is like the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked, Remember that law? Could, if you believed it was like the law of the Medes and Persians, then you could believe that once God sets an instruction in place, he can never change it again. Can you imagine trying to bind God that way? I mean, talk about handcuffing God. God, once you made the law, you can't change it. You can't do anything different. God is the boss, as we say, and he can change the terms and conditions whenever he pleases. A great example is found in Ezekiel 40 to 48. If you're familiar with that section of Ezekiel, it's the the description of the new temple in in the millennium and the new worship system that will be held there. And if you if you carefully study and kind of put Moses, the law of Moses and the Leviticus and the sacrifices in one column of a table, and you put Ezekiel 40 to 48 in another column, and you set them side by side, you're going to say they're hopelessly contradicted. There's too many differences between them. The two sacrificial systems are different. And you know what? They are different. And you know what? That's not a problem. God set aside the Mosaic sacrificial system. He's going to establish this one in the Millennial Kingdom. It's going to have some different rituals. It's going to have some different purposes, some different symbolisms and things like that. No problem. God can do that. So the temple and its operation have quite a number of differences compared to that instruction given under Moses, but we don't get shaken by that. It's okay. So we cannot put God into a box of the law of the Medes and the Persians. And then I I ended my first response this way, and I I want you to see how I did this, what I did here, what I intended to accomplish. I said, hope that is helpful. If not, 
please try to formulate your follow-up question in a way that is a bit more clear and less adversarial sounding. Thanks, and may God bless you with a clear understanding of his word. So my hope is that this fellow who kind of threw out this one-liner, this kind of zinger question, would pause and say, you know, okay, wait a minute. You know, am I getting into a fight here? I'm not getting into a fight. Okay, I'm preaching the truth. Now, he did respond. He said, okay, brother. And so he kind of softened, I think. And then he said this, at about 10 minutes and 50 seconds in the message, you begin to say that 1 John is not speaking about the law of Moses, but about the law of Christ. So this is a brand new part of the question. Are you with me now? In 1 John, is 1 John talking about the law of Moses? Most probably not, just if you think about where 1 John is situated in New Testament revelation, and it's not. But uh, he says the law of, uh, not talking about the law of Moses, but the law of Christ, and your own words, the law of God. And then he says this, that is manipulative. I don't say you were intentionally trying to mislead. Over time, a little twisting of words and phrases will tend to establish one's viewpoint, but it can be misleading. So I wrote a, another reply to our respondent here, our inquirer, and I said, hello again, Mike. Thank you for recognizing there is no intent to mislead here. In using the phrase law of Christ, I'm following the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6, 2. The Apostle Paul there says that we are to fulfill, well, we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the what? Law of Christ. So fulfill the law of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 9, especially made clear in uh, some of the newer English translations, but in 1 Corinthians 9.21, Paul says, To those who are without law, I became as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. Basically telling us, I'm under the law of Christ here. But he's not specifically under the law of Moses. So I understand, I'm saying this, I understand this law to be precisely as the same thing as the law of liberty in James 1, 25 and James 2, 12. Uh, so speak and so, uh, let's, well, let's just look at it. James chapter 1, perhaps you're not as familiar with it. But when, he, when James talks about the law of liberty, he's not talking about the law of Moses. It's a different thing. Uh, James 1.25, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it. There's the mirror example. And then in, in James 2.15, uh, sorry, did I say 2.12 rather. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Uh, it's interesting that Paul doesn't call the law of Moses the law of liberty. It's more like a law of bondage, more like a law of condemnation. The law of liberty is a different thing altogether. So uh, you can see that the Hebrew roots movement has a deep misunderstanding of this big picture item in the scriptural revelation. The law of liberty, the law of, of, of Christ, is, is the code given by Christ through his teaching and the writings of the apostles in what we call the New Testament. Okay, so... Jesus told the disciples, his apostles, you make disciples, baptize them, and do what? Teach them everything I've commanded you. That's the law of Christ. What is that? Well, 
We see some of it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we see the rest of it in Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, all the way down to the book of Revelation, the whole rest of the New Testament that God, through Christ, gave to his apostles to give to the church. This law of Christ is summarized by the law of love. The law of love for God, right? Love the Lord your God, and the law of love for your neighbor. Now, indeed, this looks very similar to the law of Moses. Why? Because it comes from the same God. It comes from the same God. And so it's similar, but it's different. Okay? Same holy requirements. Murder is always wrong, Old Testament, New Testament. Okay? Adultery is always wrong. Stealing is always wrong. Coveting is always wrong. Using the name of God in vain is always wrong. But there's differences. There are differences. Circumcision is not required anymore. Sabbath observance is not required. Kosher diet is not required. Observance of the three major Jewish holidays is not required in the New Testament. Animal sacrifice is not required. I've just taken out huge chunks of the law of Moses and said, look, those are not given for the Gentiles or the church today. Now, I'm aware of a difficulty with this view, and that is, well, you're teaching men to uh, disregard parts of the law. And didn't the Lord say, if you teach men to do so, then you'll be the least in the kingdom of heaven? Yes, I understand that statement, but I think you're using it out of context. You have something, brother? You're just here. You're troubled by that too, aren't you? Yeah. So, yes. Yes. Okay. For those online, the, the question Thurman raises for our questioner here is, what is the significance of the statement about from Jesus saying that he came to fulfill the law? And... Uh, yeah, if we're, if, if we're still bound by it, why did he fulfill it, Thurman says. And that's a very excellent point. He fulfilled it. We certainly could not have. We still could not, cannot. And so, yes, indeed, uh, this is the case. So are we teaching men to disregard the commands of God? No, nay, rather, we're teaching people to obey the law of Christ, which if you think about it, when Christ came... In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, for instance, he says, look, it's not just the law written there, you shall not commit adultery. It's a whole lot more than that, my friend. You shall not you know, murder some... Well, it's a lot more than just murdering. There's a high calling here, and that's, that's kind of really what the law was about, but he's really making that clear. So lots of elements of the Mosaic law are not required for us to... Uh, be pleasing to God today. And those are, are crystal clear in the New Testament. So I would in turn, uh, turn this around rather and offer this rebuttal to the Hebrew roots viewpoint. The words that I used were not twisting or manipulating the text of Scripture. Rather, something has become twisted in the Hebrew roots movement. It appears to be going back to something substantially similar to the Galatian heresy that Paul wrote so str strongly about in the book of Galatians and elsewhere too in Colossians and, and other places. I close with this paragraph. There is a certain romantic idea of going back to the early church, but the church then had a lot of problems as evidenced by Paul's letters in the book of Acts 
It was not the pristine thing that we might like it to have been. You with me? You go back to the early church. Well, do you want to go back and be like Corinth? I don't. You know, do you want to go back and have the problems that the church in, in, in uh, Acts and in Antioch did in Jerusalem when they were struggling over whether to be cir- circumcised or not? I don't. We're past that, thankfully. Um, so there's a lot of going back and forth, particularly on this Jew and Gentile issue. And Acts 15 made clear that the church is not primarily Jewish in flavor, but that's what Hebrew roots wants to do. It wants to take us back to a fully Jewish flavored church. Of course, I say here as I close, the church arises from the Jewish faith in the Old Testament. But the church, and here's the key thing, the church includes Gentiles as Gentiles, not as Jews. Does that make sense? We are, we are in the church. There's, in, in effect, it's including us as Gentiles, but it's flattening the distinction. So there's really in Christ no Jew or Gentile. There are still Jews and there are still Gentiles. And when I come into the church, that really doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm still a Gentile. I can't do anything about that. My lineage, my birth, and all that, it is what it is. But the church includes Gentiles as Gentiles, Jews as Jews, and they function on a level playing field in the church. So those are my responses to that issue. Okay? Now, uh, Jansen, any questions pop up there on your commentary there? No? Okay. So I'm going to go to my phone and check out, see what I have here. Uh, yes, thank you, Becky. We see that you say, oh, yay, my song, I am singing. So that worked out. Uh, she asked, I would be interested to hear your take on vaccines. Oh, boy. Uh, Jansen, how about you come up here and answer that question? <laughs> All right. So the question about vaccines, I was speaking about this and uh, did just a very bare amount of reading, very little amount of reading on it. Let me try to address the issues, and you remind me, if you would, uh, here in the audience, if there's an issue that I'm not touching on. Number one issue is, um, are are we uh, afraid of taking the vaccine because there's something in it that is um, evil? Uh, number two, uh, are we are we do, is there an ethical violation in using the vaccine because of how it was produced or tested? And there was a third item. Brother, do you remember what it was from the conversation you were in on the other night? I was talking to Brother James. We were talking to somebody and we were on this issue. It was right there in that corner. What's that? Yes, okay, that, that's part of the second issue, okay, the stem cell element. Um, let, me, let me answer, first of all, the kind of conspiracy theory that uh, with the vaccine, Bill Gates is going to inject us all with the mark of the beast or something like that, okay? That's foolishness, all right? Just drop that out of your mind. Uh, there, there is no little microchip that's, you know, in that uh, syringe that they stick into your arm. It just is not. Um, so that's, uh, that, that one is aside. Um, I will just say briefly on the, my position on the vaccine is, personally, I'm not going to be an early adopter of it. I've always been that way with lots of different things, uh, even computer software, I've told people. 
Let it mature a little bit. Let a few bugs get worked out, and we'll see how it goes. But, and I don't need to be worried about that um, in the you know, age and health category that I'm in. Um, but I also would say this. When it comes time, I have no, from my understanding now, no uh, moral or ethical um, you know, uh, compunction against taking the vaccination, and I may just have to do so just for travel purposes. I've taken a, a number of vaccines. You have to go and get, you know, poked with this and that and the other thing to travel to South America or Africa or wherever you go, and that's just how life is. There's government regulations, and there's good reason for it. Um, another issue is the um, the kind of need for a mass vaccination. People have wondered why a mass vaccination for a disease with such a high survivability rate. And my understanding of the answer to that question is that we're trying to, as a society, save those that are the most vulnerable among us by reducing the spread among the entire population. Uh, that's how it works with the polio vaccine, smallpox vaccine, uh, diphtheria, measles, mumps, rubella, all those other ones. So uh, that is a useful thing, and it is something we can do as a human race to reduce suffering. I mean, think of the marvel of Louis Pasteur inventing the vaccine against what dread uh, infection is it? Rabies. Oh, that's awful. That is awful. Um, but the fact that he was able to develop that was a great advancement in medical science and very helpful and uh, nothing evil about it. Now, uh, the whole issue with the stem cells and the um, issue of abortion comes into this. So there's a, a, a kind of a conspiracy out there that when you take the vaccine, uh, they are injecting into you the cells of an aborted baby. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah, so I understand that to be an entirely false statement, but it is based on something that is true. Some vaccines are produced using the cell lines that arose from an aborted fetus, aborted baby. And some vaccines are not produced using those, cell lines, but they are tested using those cell lines. In particular, those cell lines are very carefully documented for scientific purposes. And the one that I'm aware of involved in the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine is not, was not used in the production of the vaccine, but was used in some testing of it. Uh, those cells came from a fetus aborted in 1972 and those cell lines continue to be replicated and used for testing purposes in a laboratory setting. So there is that ethical dilemma that people have with this because it connects back to abortion. So how do I answer that? In, in other words, am I complicit in abortion if I take the vaccine? My answer to that is no, based on what I know presently. I don't know everything. I'm no expert on this, but based on what I know presently, testing it with those cells of a baby that was wrongly, sinfully terminated 
uh, is that 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 was wrong. I mean, I just can't. I, there's no way you can get around that. Um, now, of course, I may be corrected by someone who says, "Well, the actual origin of that fetus was, you know, the life of the mother or something like that." I have no clue. All right, but abortion in general, I know without a doubt, <clears throat> is wrong and sinful and murder. Um, I don't think that the moral hazard to us rises to the level that we have to refuse any or all or any particular vaccination because it was tested using those cell lines. That poor soul is gone and cannot be recovered and uh, is safe in the arms of Jesus. And that's the end for that little one. Um, So... I'm kind of talking around the question now. I'm trying to come to a a helpful understanding to you. For me personally, I don't think that that implicates me in uh, the sin of abortion. I would much rather, however, that all stem cell research and all this kind of thing be done with stem cells and other cells that are uh, um, obtained by completely ethical means. But we don't have that. Luxury because we're not the scientists that are doing this research. And they are un, uh, many unbelieving people, and so they don't care. They just use what they're given. They use the tools that they have at their disposal, and they do this. Uh, some of the other vaccines, I understand, are created with aborted, uh, these aborted cell lines, and so I'm not uh, so keen on those uh, by any means at all. Um, but with the Pfizer and Moderna, it's not an issue for the creation of those vaccines, yes. The Johnson and Johnson vaccine does fall into that second category, is our understanding. So, but I'm sh- I'm not sure that that vaccine is that actually going to see the light of day, or did that was that not actually as effective as some of the others. Yeah. Now, let me also answer or ask a technical matter about um, these vaccines. I understand somebody said to me that they, when they took the vaccine, they had to sign this waiver, and it is technically experimental still. It's not, it is an experimental vaccine. It's not a fully, uh, what do you call, approved, FDA-approved vaccination. So this is like one of the most massive experimental uh, distributions of vaccine ever. Um, but... If it's only good for, as the kind of waiver said that this person I was uh, hearing from said, if it's only really good for a few months, then I question, honestly, just as a scientist, as a human being, as a thinking person, I question the utility of it. Is it really only good for three months? And if that's the case, what's the point of getting it? Because in three months and one day or six months or something, I'm going to run into the virus again. So I'm not sure, you know, I'm not, that, I'm not fully informed on that issue. I find it hard to believe that it would only be effective for, for three months. But uh, such is the kind of state of information and flux that we have today uh, with this. And so I'm just giving you my honest understanding of it. And, um, you know, as they say, I've, I've, uh, I've told you more than I know already, so I better stop. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I... It's just a, it's just a, it's just a whole slew of uh, uh, 
you know, a slew of despond, <laughs> a slew of uh, just a mess. It's just, you know, the, the moral hazards and the unintended consequences and all of those things that happen. Uh, it's, it's, it is not as clear as, say, a vaccine for measles or, you know, I don't know, chicken pox or something like that. Those seem to be more clear-cut to me, but this virus, this vaccine is somewhat experimental um, and uh, it's, you know, as the flu vaccines have gone, this may also go kind of be kind of effective, kind of not, kind of hit or miss. So I really don't know uh, that matter, but I am concerned uh, enough about it. So, you know what, uh, it's kind of like I taught about early on last, um, oh, maybe April, May, June, the mask issue. The mask issues really come down to an issue of um, a conscience. You know, how much are you going to wear a mask? Are you now going to start wearing two masks? We have to leave that up to each individual. And uh, I, I cannot sit here in judgment and say, you know, or be a policeman and say you must uh, or you must not. That's got to be left up to the individual. So as for me, I'm trying to stay as healthy as I can and using the mask as uh, only as absolutely necessary. So I'm not driving my car with a mask. I'm not sitting in my office wearing a mask. I think it's unhealthy. Uh, and I want to be healthy. So uh, the real answer is, to me, social distancing, if you want to stay away from people. What did we do, what did we do when we were kids? Or, you know, my mom, she doesn't like sickness in the house. So she says, if you're sick... Don't come over. That's been for 40 years. I mean, there's nothing surprising about this. Just stay away. Get over it, get better, and then, you know, come around. But, um, you know, I've heard stories of people within the last few months sick, and they know they're sick, and they go out in groups, and they do that anyway. Why? Why do you do that? You know, when you know it could be deadly to other people. It's not a common cold. You can make an argument that a common cold is deadly to some people, but, you know, that's it's a little... After a while, you're not going to be able to do anything if you're concerned about that, at that level. But anyway, so the vaccine is going to be an issue, I think, of, of conscience and of uh, external... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? External obligation. I mean, if you have to to do your work or you have to to travel or whatever, then, you know, you have to make that decision or change your job or, or whatever. But I don't see any moral or ethical reason why we cannot take it. I do understand there are some issues involved, and uh, those are not easy. So, all right. Anything else? Anyone? I'm going to make one last check here, and seeing nothing, we move on. All right. Matthew chapter 3, and we only have a few moments remaining this evening. i just quickly review. I want you to remember that in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is introduced uh, rather abruptly, and he preaches a message of repentance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preaches a message also of judgment because the judge is coming, a baptism of fire is coming, as well as a baptism of the Spirit. And he says that this one is going to sort out the wheat from the chaff, gather the wheat into the barn, burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then Jesus comes onto the scene suddenly as well. 
So Matthew wastes no time to introduce both the main characters here in the early part of, of his gospel. And it says that Jesus came from Galilee in verse 13 to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Let me remind you what that means. We looked at this and we said that, uh, understandably, John was concerned that he could not baptize one so great and so high as Jesus because John was just a lowly sinner and he needed to be baptized by Jesus, not the reverse. But Jesus uh, pushed him and said, you must permit it for now because it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so John was convinced by that statement and he did. Now, what was Jesus saying? It's not spelled out here as much as we might like, but my understanding of it is this, that when Jesus said that he was fulfilling all righteousness, he was not saying there was some lack presently that caused him to be in sin. What he was doing was he was saying, this is an act that I must do in connection with A, your message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and B, your people, those who have repented, and shown their connection to your message. Not that Jesus was one just like them, but he was one who was going to take on their sin and allow that repentance to become effective into their salvation. And then thirdly, to fulfill all righteousness does not only mean that Jesus was associated with John's message and John's people, but also that he that we are we are associated through Jesus to John's message so that all future peoples, in other words, Jesus would be connecting to John's message of repentance as well. Okay, so the idea is that I, say, as a prototypical believer today, just an example believer is what I mean, I also exercised repentance because I recognized I was a sinner. And I recognize that Christ is coming back, and I need to do that to be in right relationship with with him. Okay, So I did exactly what the people did who listened to John's message. Have you done that? Have you repented for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? That's crucial to the gospel message. Again, we we express our disbelief, our, our incredulity at people who try to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with repentance. It has everything to do with repentance. If you don't repent, you are not saved. I don't know how to say that with more oomph, with more strength than I am right now. You must repent. God grants the, the sinner penitence. He grants him repentance. That's a gift of God, and it must be Exercise. It is an integral part of what salvation is. And so I did that. I repented. I was, of course, gifted the mindset by God. I was convicted by the Holy Spirit that that was the only sensible course of action. So yes, salvation is of the Lord, but I exercised that repentance. And that's part of true righteousness. Thus, Jesus fulfilling all righteousness, allowing us to connect back through him to that. And let me just make this, I think it's in my conclusion tonight, I say this, what is the point of all this? Well, our Savior identified with John's message of repentance so that we in him could be identified with the same message. 
We are repenters just like the people who came to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Our hearts have been prepared to receive him. How? By repenting, right? Um, make straight the ways of the Lord. You know, straighten out the crooked paths. Makes, level the hills down. Raise up the valleys. We say that in song form in Joy to the World. We say, let every heart prepare him room. How do you do that? By repenting. And we say, let earth receive her king. How do you do that? By repenting, by turning away from sin and becoming rightly related to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So that's the meaning of fulfilling all righteousness. Now, we don't have time tonight, but I'll just say where we're going. Next, we look at the fact that Jesus was affirmed by God. He was affirmed by God. When he had been baptized, verse 16 says, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And here's the affirmation. Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That, my friends, is a fulfillment of prophecy. It is expressing what Isaiah said would be the case in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. That's our Messiah, friends. And that's what is happening here in Matthew 3, 16 through 17. But I can't get to all of it. I have to stop. So we conclude tonight. Thank you for your attention for those questions. And I hope that we provided some help with them this evening. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your blessing. Thank you for your kindness in Christ Jesus. Thank you for a clear gospel message. Thank you for the clarity of the word about the law of God, the law of Moses, the law of Christ, the law of liberty. And thank you, Lord, for the clear way you've taught us that no works can bring about salvation. Uh, and also a little clarification we offered on this morning's message about Paul's linguistic ability. And then this, Lord, just to remind ourselves of Christ fulfilling all righteousness. We look forward to looking at how you affirmed him and acknowledged him in that statement in the end of Matthew 3. We pause to remember the significance that we can address corporately together through my voice, the Lord God of the universe. And Lord, help us to be rightly humble, rightly reverent before you, because you are God and we are mere men. Thank you in Jesus' name for hearing us. Amen.